All right. Well, it's been a full morning already, and we still got a lot to go. So, um, you notice we sing um, How Firm a Foundation on, typically, as I mentioned, on the Sundays when we do family dedication, just as a great reminder of how important this is that we get to lay the foundation for these kids, um, and that they then are, in so many ways, the foundation of the church um, when it comes to the growth. Obviously, Christ is the foundation, the cornerstone of everything that we do. But when we think about what will the church be doing in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years from now, um, thinking about how we need to be investing in these kids now, um, laying the correct foundation for them, laying the right foundation for them. Um, and, and that's so much of what our church is dedicated to. Uh, that's, again, why, um, though I mentioned in that prayer, that, that um, uh, many of you, if you haven't already, will be getting a phone call. Um, from someone in the children's ministry saying, hey, how are you going to be invested? How are you going to be involved? Um, it's, it's an important ministry that we do here, and, and maybe in many ways the most important ministry that we do here is raising up that next generation of believers um, to have a firm foundation um, for what that means. And so um, I really want to strongly encourage you to figure out a way to answer yes when you get that phone call. Um, uh, that's, we, are, we are not primarily concerned about your comfort when it comes to that. And we are primarily concerned about the, the raising up of a new generation of believers. And on that note, by the way, one of the things I love about when we do the, the family dedications is you can count on kids to be kids and make kid noises and reach for microphones and, and all that kind of stuff. It's another great reminder to me to remind all of us that, that is a, that's a privilege that we have to have kids in this church. There are many churches in the country that would give a lot to have children's noises in their church again. Uh, many churches around the, the nation um, are dying for a lack of young families and young children. And um, so if, I always like to say, if you're one of those people who the way you're raised in church makes you want to kind of cut, cut your eyes judgmentally over at some mom whose kid is making noise, then you honestly probably either need to repent or you may be in the wrong church. Like that is not, that's not the place we are. That, that's something about our hearts that demands something that, that God does not demand of us. So, um, so perfection is not part of what it means to live life as a Christian, um, especially when it comes to parenting, as any of you who have worked with my children know perfectly well. So um, that's how that works. Okay, speaking of firm foundations, how cool is this? Just noticed on my calendar right before I came up here that tomorrow um, will be the anniversary from 2002 of the first time that First Baptist South Campus ever had a service. Um, and so that's kind of fun. That's who we were before we... Uh, became South Spring Baptist Church, and so we, we, I just noticed that on the calendar that tomorrow would represent the anniversary of the first Sunday service, so um, great foundation conversations. Um, one more I want to comment on. If you, if you keep your eye on the news and you've been watching the news, then you may be troubled, as I am, to have seen um, that, uh, that yet again, not a huge surprise, hopefully, to anybody, but yet again, um, there are people abusing the church and the name of Jesus Christ, and in doing so, abusing other people. Um, so in some cases, abusing children for decades, and in some people, some cases, just um, other people in the church um, with harassment. And so, um, I, I would, I just want to make sure you hear and you know, like we, we have handbooks in place here at this church, and and are very open to accountability on those type of conversations here, and we have those conversations regularly. Um, all the way from, from at, at any level, so that this is, this is important to hear for you to know the church that you've chosen to come and live out life with. Um, we take that stuff seriously, and those of you who are working with children, you know it because you've had to read and sign that you read the handbook, um, the So Loved Handbook that shows how seriously we take this. 
Um, but also to hear, like, that is true for our staff, too, that there is accountability for me and for every member of the staff, um, that, that if there's anything inappropriate or, or someone's uncomfortable with, there's a plan for how that's handled and what's done with that. And so I just want to make sure you know, like, I am not above um, being questioned or accountability on any of this type of stuff. No one is. And so it's, it's always troubling to me and painful to me, obviously, as a minister, to hear in the media about uh, pastors and ministers who have abused that type of authority and power. Um, and so I just want to make sure you know that here where, here where you are this Sunday and hopefully where you've invested, um, that we also take that seriously because it is biblical to defend one another in regards to those things, to protect um, especially the, those who are less powerful to protect the children. So just be aware. Um, hopefully over the next few months, by, um, by the new year, almost all of our handbooks that we've been developing so far will be online and open probably, at least mostly, to the public. So, um, but again, just, just know this is not something that we're um, afraid to talk about here. We do all the time. So um, I want to make sure you knew that, you have that in your head. All right, John chapter 6. Um, in John chapter 6, it really is amazing how often, even though we try to kind of target things to hit the right way through the calendar, um, I mean, you've heard me teach, you know that I, I often don't wrap up where I'm supposed to, or don't get where I want to get, or that kind of stuff. So it is always cool when, um, when God works it out such that, like today, when we wanted to do a devoted Sunday and focus some attention on communion, that John chapter 6, this is Jesus' first time to touch on this topic to touch on the body and the blood. And so we're going to get to get into that um, today as we jump into it. So um, uh, John chapter 6, verse 40, For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So recall that Jesus is in a conversation with the same people. He is still talking to them that, uh, that, that literally 12 hours or so before this, he has fed thousands of them with five loaves and two fish. Um, they went away, all impressed, and most importantly, full. Twelve hours later, they wake up, and it turns out that even a miraculous feeding of the stomach leaves you hungry the next day. And this is amazing. To, Jesus is now going to try to, to get through their thick skulls this idea of, of a fulfillment that won't last and a fulfillment that will last. And it's just as hard for me to get it into my thick skull and for us to get it into our thick skulls, this concept as Jesus sort of, I don't mean this as a limitation on him, but on us, his audience, as Jesus struggles to communicate this to his audience, I am now going to struggle to try to communicate what he is struggling to try to communicate to his audience. Um, and it, it's not easy to talk through this stuff. We're going to do our best here. But understand, this is, so Jesus has said to them, um, you need to have faith. You need to faith in me, is what it says in the Greek. You need to trust in me. You need to, you need to believe in me. That's, what it, that's how you do this. And they go, okay, well then persuade us with a miracle. And Jesus already told them, you're not here for miracles. You're not here for truth. What you're here for is breakfast. And they go, no, 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 no. We're here for here. We want to learn something. We want to follow you if you can persuade us. So persuade us with a miracle. Now remember, this is the exact same people who saw five loaves and two fish feed thousands less than 12 hours ago. And so they come back and say, you know what we need is a sign, and we have a great idea for what kind of sign you could do. You could make breakfast. And so Jesus has, exactly, has nailed them yet again with that exact mindset that we have, which is, I'm more concerned with right now than I am with forever. That's us, the amphibians that we are. We are animals and spiritual beings. And so our flesh is so powerful for us that we go, yeah, but what about right now? Yeah, but what about right now? And it's amazing to me that people talk about the Bible as though it's outdated. The only way I can assume that you would have that understanding is if you didn't know people well. 
is that you would feel like the Bible was outdated. It is not. It is, it is dead on. That is still us. Have any of you noticed? So some of you are old enough to remember when everyone smoked, okay? Some of you remember that, when it was not an abnormal thing to smoke. Like, just, everyone just kind of did, right? And so if you were one of those people, think back to what time of the day you smoked. Like, when, what, you, when you got up in the morning, first thing you did was light up a cigarette, and then, and then well, as you were wrapping up breakfast, you would smoke another one. And then as you were kind of driving in the car, that's, uh, people who have tried to help stop smoking in the past, driving in the car is one of the hardest places to stop smoking, and et cetera, throughout the day, right? So understand that you've replaced that with another one. That's the exact same moments when you look at your social media now, that we have replaced cigarettes with social media. That's why it's so hard to not text and drive. It's for the exact same reason it was hard to not smoke and drive. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, it's the same problem that we all have, that we, that we are trying to fill this little immediate kick to encourage our sense of the flesh in that moment. I want just a little bit of comfort, I want a little pat on the head, I want a little encouragement, whatever it is. And I want to be rewarded just for a second. That's not evil. It's just insufficient to give us meaningful life. And it's certainly insufficient to give us eternal life. And so Jesus is going to try to give their, ver their version of that is bread. So he's going to try to communicate to them, think beyond the immediate. Get out of the moment enough to think about forever and real significance. And that's what he's going to try to do with this. In order to help you understand where Jesus goes with this and throughout the book of John, I'm going to give you a very quick primer on the concept of I am. Where does that come from? Now, if you've grown up in the church, you're probably aware, but that, that those two words, I am, almost always carry special significance in the Bible. Here's why. So going way, way, way back, Joseph, the guy with the coat of many colors, um, his story ends with him being in Egypt and him bringing his family to Egypt. So he brings them, he brings them to him from Egypt. They then stay there, and they are guests of Pharaoh, and they, they multiply and populate over the next few generations. At some point in that process, over the next few hundred years, so, so um, the, the, European found, the European people who founded settlements in the United States did so around the 1600s, right? 1607, 1620, that kind of stuff. Those are when the, some of the original European settlements happened. That's about 400 years ago. That's how long the people of Israel were in Egypt, about 400 years. That's a long time. In the meantime, they, they grew and their population grew and they became a, a fairly sizable nation within the nation of Egypt. On top of that, at some point, they ceased to be guests of Egypt and became slaves of Egypt. Not surprising. So as they were living out as slaves, and they were for many hundreds of years, many generations, at some point... Um, a guy named Moses is adopted into the royal family. If you've ever seen the Ten Commandments or Prince of Egypt, it's nothing like that. Um, so just kind of wipe that out of your head. That's, that's, that is a very Hollywood version of the story that's just pretty much incredibly inaccurate. Um, but it was, he was still adopted somehow into the royal family. At some point, knowing that he was really a Hebrew, he murdered, if you call it that, murdered an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew. And then he had to flee the country because even for royal family, especially if you're a Hebrew, that's illegal. So he flees the country and goes and lives in a, place, a land called Midian for a while, marries a Midianite woman and, is, and, and lives in that Midianite woman's family's home for another few decades. Then one day when he's, because he, he's a shepherd, as he's shepherding some sheep, he sees an odd sight, which is a bush that is burning, but it's not going away. It's not burning up. 
That's strange. So Moses walks over to the bush. To summarize, what happens is Moses meets God in this burning bush. God uses this burning bush to get Moses' attention. Moses comes over, he's prepared, he's ready to talk, and God uses this opportunity to begin to talk to Moses. Here's what Moses, here's what happens. God speaks to him and says, I'm going to use you to set the people of Egypt, to set the people of Israel free from Egypt. And Moses then asks the wrong question first. Just like us, he asks the wrong question. His first question is, well, who am I? God says, I'm going to send you to Egypt to set my people free. And Moses says, well, who am I? And God says, it doesn't matter who, I'm summarizing, it doesn't make any difference who you are, I am coming with you. And Moses then asks the natural question, well, then who are you? That's where we are, right? Okay, here we are in in Exodus chapter 3. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, said this, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. This is intriguing because the people of Israel at this point did not know God's name was I am. This is a pivotal moment in human history. So far as we know, God had always gone, by, from our perspective, we had only known him as El, meaning God. Some version of El is what you see throughout Scripture. It's the word for God. It's a title, not a name. Yahweh, I am, God reveals as his name, or at least a name for him. Yahweh, I am. This is significant. It tells us a lot about God's nature, about who he is, as well as a name. We're going to stick with just that for now. What that means is when you see the phrase, I am, coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ, every time he does it, it infuriates the Jewish audience that he's speaking to. Now you know why. Jesus is claiming identity with Yahweh when he does it. It's why it makes people mad every time he does it. So like, for example, back in verse 35, Jesus had said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So down now we're to verse 41. The Jews grumbled about him because he had said, quote, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They are especially grumbling about the I am part and the from heaven part. That's not allowed. Verse 42, they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? We know this guy. How does he come from heaven? What do you mean come from heaven? We know Mary and Joseph. By the way, there's multiple places that would indicate that during Jesus' lifetime, the whole son of God thing had not been bought by the general audience. This is the son of Joseph. Um, Apparently, Mary's story about not having slept with Joseph was not generally believed. Uh, How can he say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, you don't have to grumble among yourself. There's no point in this. Remember, they came to him looking for something. And now he's trying to teach it to them, trying to explain it to them. Verse 44, this is a powerful verse right here. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So just to to comment, understand, here Jesus is saying, you can't come to him unless the Father draws you. Now, here's here's a big portion. There's a lot of debate within Christianity about what this means, but let's talk about the minimum of what it at least means. It at least means you need to understand, we need to understand that it is God's job and God's responsibility alone to create the conditions under which we are persuaded. 
That's his job. And you can't get to him any other way. Now, that may be supernatural that, that the Holy Spirit speaks in our heart and we are just immediately drawn to him. There's all different things this can mean. What does it mean that God has to draw us? But it could be as simple as God puts you into the conditions, whatever your version of the foxhole is, that you walk away from your atheism in that moment, that you walk away from your humanism in that moment. Um, uh, one of the common analogies used in Christianity is that, is that lost people, we, that as a lost person, we're like a criminal and we think of God like a policeman. What would possibly cause us to go to him? Criminals don't seek out policemen. So what would possibly persuade a criminal to seek out the help of a policeman? Well, there certainly are situations under which that would happen. Hanging by one hand off a cliff with big sharks beneath you would be an example. So when you spiritually, when God puts you, whatever God has to do to the person who he has chosen to create them and has put them in a situation where they will eventually call upon the name of the Lord, he will draw us to that. He creates those conditions for us through the power of his spirit, through the power of his word, through the power of preaching, that God uses those things in order to teach us and persuade us to say, you know what, that's what I need to believe in. That's the truth. That's trustworthy. I need the faith there. Again, if you need to go back and watch last week's sermon, like that, we don't have an action verb for faith, but the Greeks did. So the word that all over through here is faith in me. That we need a faith there. What's going to convince us? What's going to persuade us? I believe God is calling. I think if you're here today, you're hearing enough to hear that God is, God is drawing you with the truth to say, you know what? That's where I'm going to faith. We're going to get to next week when everyone walks away from Jesus and the apostle Peter is even going to give this very almost depressing answer of like, where else am I supposed to go? You don't necessarily have to feel a lot about it. That's, that's different to, among different people, what you feel about it. But to be persuaded to the truth of it is what Jesus is talking about here. And he's the only one who gets to do it. Um, so Jesus says, um, it is written in the prophecies, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father and he's talking about himself. He's pointing to himself all through this. This is Jesus. We know him and his family. How is he from heaven? Jesus clarifies, no, 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 no. I'm the only one who does know. You don't need to argue with me. Just listen. Just listen. The drawing of men is the Father's job. Remember the promises of last week. Those who faith in him, he will never lose, and he will raise them up. Jesus repeats these over and over through this. He will never lose, and he will raise them up. If you will faith in Christ, if you will believe and put your trust in Christ, here's the two things you need to trust him for and that he promises to do. He will never leave you and he will raise you up. Those are the two things you can be confident of in every situation. The prophet said that they would come when we would learn from God himself. So remember last week when I mentioned the idea of buying flowers for my wife. And I said, if, you want to buy, if I want to buy flowers for my wife... I go and say, okay, what, what type of flowers should I get my wife? And you guys can all throw out answers, right? You can all throw out what your, what your favorites are or what your wife's favorites are or whatever. And, oh, have you ever heard of these? Blah, blah, blah. And you can all do that. And that's, that's the question we put through up on the board. What must we do to do the works of God? Humans answering that question is what religion is. What we really need, what you really need to know is what kind of flowers does she say she wants, Right? Those, that's the person whose opinion, yes? Okay, good. Just making sure y'all were still out there. The, um, um, one of these days, I'm just going to see you and you're not going to be there and be like, shoot, I'm dreaming it now. 
Anyway, so, so that, yes, that's a, she's the, if I'm buying flowers for her, then whose opinion matters? Hers does. So if I want to learn to live for God, whose opinion matters? God's does. It's church. God's always a pretty safe answer, right? God is. God is whose opinion I need to know. And Jesus is saying, I am God, so listen to my opinion on this, because I'm the only one who knows. I'm the only one who knows. Everybody else's opinion is equally valid slash invalid, but I've been there. I know it. These are the right answers. I will never lose, and I will raise them up. This was prophesied by Jeremiah, Joel, and Isaiah that God himself would teach his people. And that is happening in John chapter 6. God himself is teaching. That's always nice when you can get that, isn't it? <clears throat> when you can skip past everybody else's opinion. When you can actually finally ask the author. You ever read a confusing thing in a book and you're like, man, I wish I could speak to the author about what this means. My mom claims, I've, you know, I need to look this up and verify this one, but my mom claimed years ago in a literary class that they studied for, for weeks and weeks about the um, Robert Frost's poem that ends on miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. According to the legend she shared with me that someone asked Frost actually, why did you do this, that line twice in a row? And his answer was kind of some version of like, yeah, I couldn't think of anything else to put there. Well, they had studied for weeks and weeks on why he had done it that way. It's always nice when you can ask the author, what's going on with that? I don't know if I trust that story. It preaches too well. Anytime that happens, you know, it'd be dubious. But so they were experiencing that day. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to ask God what God thinks the right answer is. And Jesus is saying, hey, good news, you're getting to do that. Verse 46, not anyone has seen the Father except he who is from heaven. He who has seen the Father, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes have eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This, you can imagine Jesus pointing to himself, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life, is of, the life of the world is my flesh. Now it starts getting a little weird. His analogy begins to take on kind of a dark turn. For us, it's a little weird. For the Jews, it was unthinkable. Where Jesus goes with this is unthinkable to them. We are drawn, we are persuaded, we believe. What is that like? What is that like? Jesus is saying, well, it's kind of like, if I'm the bread, it's kind of like eating the bread, meaning my flesh. It's kind of like that. Well, the Jewish audience would have been incredibly troubled by this. Leviticus 17 forbids them from eating any meat, even with blood in it, much less human flesh, and then drinking the blood of a human, that's just weird. That's just strange. And the Jews disputed among themselves in verse 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Doesn't this sound familiar? So first we had Nicodemus saying, how can I get back in my mother's womb? That's weird. And it is. It's a weird picture. How, wait, wait, so there's water I can drink that I will, never, I will never be thirsty again? How do I get that water? That's weird, Jesus. Yes. I am the bread of life, and you're going you're to have to learn to eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life. Wait, what? I mean, this is, he's using these analogies that are a little bit shocking for us, partially so that we will get our attention and that he can, we can learn from some of these things. Jesus is about to do the pre-teaching for communion. He will clarify this when he teaches at the Passover. We'll get there. When he teaches at the Passover, as you've experienced, if you've come to one of the Passovers that we've hosted here, 
Now, you've gotten to experience a little bit of that as, as it's been interpreted and we get to see it laid out for us. But Jesus is preparing these people for this idea. So let me, let me see if I can do this. <clears throat> this is the, the idea. So it's kind of like becoming one with Jesus, him being in you and you being in him, is similar in this way to eating and drinking. It changes you when you eat and drink something. It changes you. Um, so as a sci-fi nerd, I've read um, pretty much everything that Robert Heinlein has ever written. So you got, may have some Heinlein fans. and I don't highly recommend Heinlein. A lot of his stuff is very anti-Christian and gross. But some of his, newer, some of his earlier stuff, like the book The Stranger in a Strange Land, was an interesting thing. I'm not going to get too far off on this, I promise. Some of you are already like fading, like eh, eh, white noise, white noise. Um, I'm not going to get far down this nerd path. But the, just to hear this much of it. In one of his books, Stranger in a Strange Land, there's a human who's raised by Martians. No, no, stay with me. <laughs> human raised by Martians. Martians live in a very dry climate. They don't have water. Water's a big deal to them. And so their word for understanding and drinking is the same word. The word is grok. But that's, that's their, that's their, it means the same thing in their language. Because when you drink something, it goes into every cell of your body. So when you drink water, it goes into every cell of your body. It changes the molecular and chemical structure of your body when you drink water. Right? Yes? Yes, it does. And so it goes into your body, and it changes the very structure. That's what the word understanding was the same. If you really understand me, it's like it changes everything. Every part of your life is changed by this. You may have had an understanding like that, therapeutic understanding or, a, or, or scriptural understanding or a, or a theological understanding or just a scientific understanding or whatever that you go like, okay, now that I know that, that changes everything. Every, good, that's understanding. So understanding that in your heart, this is what Jesus is saying. To faith him, to trust him, is like eating and drinking him. In the same way that if you ate his flesh and drank his blood, it would change the very physical body that you have. So trusting in him, putting your faith in him, listening and learning and becoming one with him changes everything about your life. Everything. And becomes visible to everyone who knows you. Especially those who know you best. That as this changes, your spouse and your children, they see this change in you. They see there's something different in you. You are a different person. And you're constantly changing as you take him in further and more. As you understand more and more who he is. That continues to change. The way you engage with your employees is different than the way someone who doesn't know Jesus would treat their employees. The way you treat your boss is different. The way you treat everybody is different. The way you engage with life is different as if you ate and drank something that changed you forever. That's the analogy Jesus is trying to communicate to these people and that I'm trying to communicate here and I'm even trying to wrap my brain around myself as to how this plays out as different. Listen to what he says. So Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man, and drink his blood. You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. See how that's obviously connected to the faith concept. He's using the same thing. I'll raise him up. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, we're going to pick up there next week and and touch on it because obviously he's also connecting to the fact that his body and his blood will be broken and spilt. So we will get there too. He's clearly referencing the way he's going to, like, you're going to have to partake in the breaking and bleeding of me in order to have eternal life. We'll get there. We'll talk about that next week. But to understand, this is the picture that Jesus is creating that won't make sense to his followers until Passover and beyond. We know that eventually the teachings of Jesus about the last Passover on earth, the teachings of the apostles after he was resurrected and ascended, that Jesus connected himself to the fact that he is the ultimate embodiment of the good gifts that come down from God. When when I do a wedding, I always talk about marriage is a wonderful gift. Spouses are a wonderful gift from God, but they're not the best gift. Jesus Christ is the best gift. The power of his Holy Spirit is a great gift. They might argue about which was best. Anyway, so we live in him. We take him into our person, literally, spiritually take him in. And figuratively, physically, with this parable, um, we know it wasn't literal because the disciples didn't start taking bites out of him right here. He didn't mean it literally, or that's what they would have done. He meant this in a beautiful analogy that is really troubling for us and was extra troubling for them, and we're going to see the effect of that next week. For now, I'm going to pray real quick, and, and we're, I'm going to send um, the, the deacons and those who are handing out uh, the elements to where you're, where you're supposed to be, and the band's going to come up uh, to lead us, and, uh, and then Paul's going to come up and walk us through the taking of communion, and then uh, when we're done there, we're going to go out and experience baptism together as well to close out our time, um, but I, I hope that your heart is prepared that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, no matter how imperfectly That if there's business you need to take care of, great. Especially if it's with God, you need to take a second and do that. Um, But for believers, this is the picture, again, as we take this, this parable, this living imagery uh, of the body and the blood to be reminded, this should change everything. People should see this differently because we have partaken Jesus Christ in our lives. So if you don't know him, don't feel the need. Now, as a, Paul will comment on this. Don't feel the need to do this. Um, but let me, let me pray as we transition. Father, thank you so much for your, the good gift of your son through the power of your spirit being led to us. God, whatever it takes to persuade us of the truth of who you are, to persuade us to live life um, fully, abundantly, the life that your son has for us. God, I pray today that you would, in fact, lead us through this in your son's magnificent and holy name. Amen. Amen. John and the team uh, are going to be starting to lead us. Um, This time we're going to invite you to to stand. You're going to notice that there's uh, deacons and servants who are around the room with the elements. Uh, Go ahead and go and um, uh, and grab the elements. Don't partake, but uh, bring them back to your seats and we'll uh, partake them together. Come to the Lord's table, the table that belongs to the living bread, so that we can remember what he has done.
so that we can remember what he's currently doing. And we can remember what he promises to do to set all things wrong right once again. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, there's no need to take these elements, but there is every need for you to place your faith in Jesus. There's no need to delay. I was read this morning in Jesus' own words saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And so it is with this hope and guarantee of eternal life that we take this meal in remembrance, all that he has done and all that he will do. Describing the true food, the Apostle Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I abide in me. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing that in all the ways that you could bring about salvation, you chose to break yourself. Such suffering demonstrated as testimony of your great love for us. And as we remember this work this morning, remind us of a salvation continuing to work out in our lives until you come. So come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Now, there's one last element that we haven't uh, done on our devoted Sunday, and that is baptism. And so now it actually is my privilege to get to uh, invite you to actually exit out either the front side doors here uh, or the rear side doors and to head down to our baptistry uh, and gather around on the gravel pit down there as we get to celebrate with the Ashley family uh, the baptism of Barrett. So y'all go ahead and stand and make your way down there, and we'll conclude our service from that point.